0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. However you feel about President Trump, he's virtually unavoidable if you follow the news. And that can lead to polarized opinions. But when CPR reporters hit the road earlier this fall to hear what's on the minds of Colorado voters, they found a lot of nuanced views. Here to share what they learned, environmental reporter Grace Hood, who traveled the northern part of the state, across the plains and through the mountains, and public affairs reporter Benta Berkland, who focused on the I-25 corridor. And hello to you both.
1: Hey there. Hi, Ryan. Overall,
0: what did you hear from people, especially Republicans or independents? About the president?
2: Well, I I heard from Republicans that they're pretty happy with the policies that they're saying. They're not crazy, though, about how Mr. Trump handles himself in office. Uh, Take a listen to Mike Brasby. He lives in Fort Morgan, and we're hanging out at a drag racing strip near the Nebraska border in August.
0: I think he's doing pretty well. I don't agree with everything he has said and done. Says things that I think could have been said better and wiser. And more intelligently.
3: But
2: overall, yeah, I gave him, I didn't give him definitely passing grades. Okay, Ryan, can I just reiterate how loud it was at that drag racing strip?
0: Okay, makes sense.
2: <laughs> but, you know, Brasby really said that he doesn't like seeing the two parties of Democrat and Republican moving further apart. And he really thinks that the bombacity of Trump's tone is really driving those two parties further apart.
0: Phantom?
1: Yeah, I talked to a pastor from Fort Collins who was unaffiliated. His name's Austin Hoxie, and he called President Trump a jerk. Uh, At actually one point earlier in the conversation, he used a more R-rated word for it. Hmm. But he ultimately says he finds Trump's authenticity and truthfulness refreshing.
3: If he doesn't like you, he tells you. And so that speaks more to me than someone that says one
4: thing and does something else.
3: I don't ever feel deceived by Trump. I feel like he says what he thinks.
0: they just people generally don't like it because he's a jerk. Well, there's that word jerk. What did people say about his tweeting?
2: Boy, did I hear about the tweets. So I heard it across political lines when people were talking about the president. Like, oh, my gosh, he needs to stay off of Twitter. Here's Pastor Shorty Hoffman. He's a Republican from Kersey, just east of Greeley.
3: I wish he'd learned to not tweet.
2: Why, why do you say that? Because,
3: you know what? One of the things I've noticed, he tweets late at night. And I don't think you should do anything late at night. You're not at your best late at night.
2: I think that's pretty good advice for all of us, right? That was kind of the most development argument that I heard about why Trump should stay off of Twitter. A lot of the time people just mentioned it as an aside. Like, hey, you know, the president needs to lean on Twitter less. What's interesting is one voter that I met actually appreciates that Trump
1: is using technology like Twitter to reach a younger generation of voters and not just... You know, sending out press releases or how they usually communicate with the public. Uh, Mahesh Anandan, he immigrated to the US from India. He's unaffiliated. He works for an oil and gas company doing IT and he lives in Douglas County.
5: I'm impressed with the fact that he is spearheading a shorter form of communication, so to speak, Twitter and some of the new generation technologies and communication. But at the same time, it can be more moderated. He may have some good ideas, and I think those ideas need to be challenged right. And bottom line, I think the president could open his mind a little bit more.
0: The president has been such a presence in the news for years now. Were people that you met generally eager to talk about him?
1: I don't think so. Very few people brought him up. Sort of a, do we really have to go there? We were asking a host of questions, and this was one of the final questions we would ask. People seemed really exhausted by it. And these are people we talked to from across the political spectrum. It wasn't a topic the vast majority of people independently mentioned. Some people actually even said they wouldn't talk about the president. They refused to because they felt it
2: was too upsetting and they didn't want to maybe say things they didn't feel comfortable saying. Speaking
0: to that polarization.
2: Yeah, I definitely heard that too. And, you know, one of the interesting things I came across, I was in a small town of Julesburg, just right by the Nebraska border. And people there really didn't want to talk politics one way or the other because, you know, they didn't want to offend their neighbors. That said, I did meet one very passionate, unabashed fan of the president, the Weld County Fair. He lived in Greeley for 40 years. He runs a used car dealership there. And, you know, he was so happy because he thinks there's too much regulation right now. He really likes what Trump is doing to stop it. And, um, you know, for him, the Supreme Court and the economy are kind of two really key voting issues. And he believes that Mr. Trump has delivered on both accounts.
0: With Brett Kavanaugh, in fact, uh, taking the bench today, I know that you both talked with farmers. Obviously, there's been a lot of reporting on the effects of the president's trade policies. What did you hear from ag producers, Bentham?
1: I talked to one farmer that says his family will be negatively impacted by the trade policies in the short term, but he still supports Trump. Isaac Gentz is studying computer science. He's at Colorado State University, a registered Republican, and he grew up on a family farm in Sterling where he plans to, to go back to you know, after he graduates. And he said he really likes that Trump is doing what he said he was going to do on a host of issues. When it comes to trade, though, Gents has has been somewhat wary.
3: Being a farmer, I wasn't thrilled with how the uh you know, economic sanctions and whatnot have impacted that lately, but I see it as a long term game and I guess if a s farmers gotta take one for the team to get some
2: results, well yeah,
3: that's all right. <laughs>
0: Grace Hood, your route took you through the northeastern plains. What did you encounter out there?
2: Well, this is most definitely Trump country. It's predominantly Republican. Uh, you know, what comes to mind uh, sort of as a visual sign is uh, right by the Rogan exit along I-76 and uh, just seeing this giant sign that says, God bless Donald Trump, God bless the American flag. Uh, I, too, talked with many farmers and uh, the comment of Mr. Gents, uh, who's a farmer who's saying, uh, you know, short-term pain, long-term gain. That's definitely what I heard. Uh, One Weld County farmer who was very cautious about recent tariffs imposed, but he really did see uh, Mr. Trump's policies as being better in the long run.
1: And one more thing about the farmer I mentioned, Gents, he strongly opposes abortion rights. And I talked to him before Kavanaugh was confirmed and ceded to the U.S. Supreme Court. But I think he'd be thrilled that the court has a solid conservative majority.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And ahead of the midterm elections, CPR reporters went on road trips across the state to hear from Colorado voters what was on their minds leading up to this important election. And we're hearing from two of those reporters now who are back from their road trips, Ben to Birkeland. Gracehood. Did anyone else you talked to bring up the president's stances on social
2: issues? Absolutely. Uh, I talked with two Latinas. I met them in Sterling. It was the end of a very exhausting day. But, you know, it was one of the most memorable interviews that I did. One had legal status. The other was trying to get it. Both had experienced racism themselves. And, you know, they really felt like uh, bigots have been emboldened under Trump. Elizabeth Hernandez can't vote right now. And um, she's in the process of getting U.S. citizenship. But she really said that people hear her accent and will say things that, are really mean right directly to her
6: it's more aggressive like people people just think that they have the rights to trick people like from other races bad just because they are white that's what he's doing he's doing everyone hate everyone
2: and Hernandez says that she really did not experience the same racism under President Barack Obama. Now, it's worth pointing out that Latino turnout typically lags whites in in elections. And in the last presidential election, Latino voters represented 12 percent of eligible voters nationally, but only 9 percent of the overall electorate on oh. Election Day. So I think it's going to be fascinating to see if the Trump administration's rhetoric and the crackdown on immigration really change. Changes all of that.
0: Benta, you also talked to some people who feel the president's tone is dividing the country.
1: Yep. I talked to T.A. Taylor Hunt. She's retired from the Air Force and she's now an attorney and lives in Aurora. She's a Democrat and said she just never thought Trump would win the election. She doesn't feel like he's ever going to grow into being president. She actually never thought he would in the first place.
7: I
4: don't think in my memory that I've ever seen a president who from the day of inauguration, filed for the re campaign so that he can continue to have campaign rallies. Where's the speaking to all of us? Where's the consideration for bringing us together? But that's not, that's not going to happen.
0: But I know your reporting took you into Aurora, which is a really ethnically diverse part of Colorado. What kind of things did you hear there?
1: Well, there's obviously a big Latino population, also a lot of African and Asian immigrants I talk to people from the Southeast Asian community, and for them, a big concern is foreign policy, how the president is behaving on the world stage, what that means for our country's relationship with diplomacy in other countries around the world. They also strongly support more visas for high skilled workers and worried that the language Trump uses around immigration casts it as something negative when they see a lot of benefits.
0: Speaking of foreign policy, we, of course, have learned this morning that Nikki Haley is going to be leaving the administration by the end of the year. OK, what big takeaways did you come away with when it comes to where people stand on the president? Grace?
2: Hey, uh, So I think as someone who sort of covers politics from the periphery as the energy and environment reporter, I really left this whole experience thinking that the president's future is super hinged to the economy. My sense is that voters are with him so long as things are good, but they could turn on him if we hit another recession or if we start to see more negative impacts from tariffs. He really ran on the economy, so I think his political career could die if the economy hits a recession, say.
1: You know, we talk to such a big variety of people from different ethnicities, ethnicities, ages, you know, parts of the state. So it's hard to find you know one overarching theme. But um, if I had to, I'd say I, I heard a lot of uncertainty and unease about just what's around the corner, and that seems to be fed a bit by how dramatically the Trump administration can just swing from one thing to another. And I think for Colorado, it's going to be really interesting to see if and how passionate feelings about the president, for and against influence the races on this year's ballot at the state level. Governor, AG, we have state legislative races that will determine control at the state capitol. None of that's directly tied to the president, but he may be firing people up to vote in these local races just to be able to do something. So a lot of dynamics at play.
0: Yeah, it'll be fascinating to watch. Thanks to both of you. I know you covered a lot of mileage and we're grateful to you for sharing what what you heard.
1: Thanks. Thanks, Ryan.
0: CPR's public affairs reporter Benta Berkland and environment reporter Grace Hood talking about our Road Trip to November coverage. You can find voter profiles along with really powerful photos at roadtrip.cpr.org. Election night is less than a month away, and you'll hear news outlets calling races. Now, that doesn't always go well.
4: A big call to make. CNN announces that we call Florida in the Al Gore column. Stand by. Stand by. Uh, CNN right now is moving our earlier declaration of Florida back to the too close to call column. George Bush, governor of Texas, will become the 43rd president of the United States at 18 minutes past. So
0: could 2000 ever happen again? We're going to lift the veil on calling races. Jim Clark does this for the AP in Colorado. And by the way, the AP has been calling races since 1848. Yes, we have some experience in this. Hi, Jim. Hello. Describe what it was like during the 2000 presidential election when the AP made the wrong call. What What kind of backlash did the AP get?
8: Well, first of all, thanks for that intro. (laughs) Why don't you give me a paper cut and pour lemon juice in it?
0: (laughs) It is starting with your worst moment. (laughs) Yeah. So uh,
8: that was actually uh, – the fellow who made that call uh, for the AP was a guy named Kevin Walsh. He's since retired. He was my boss for years. Uh, The AP only made half a mistake. We called for gore. Mm -hmm. And then Kevin saw some transposed numbers in the county around St. Petersburg and Tampa Bay and uncalled it, and we never called it again because it was too close. So we felt pretty good about that. We made a mistake. We pulled it back, and we never called it again because, as we know, it ended up with, what, 538 votes? Separating it. That's right. And of course, it went through the courts as well. Of course, yes. Not resolved for many days. Uh, So to answer your question, could it happen again? Of course it could happen again. Have we learned lessons? Have we built in technological fixes? And have we taken a deep breath
0: and thought about this every single election cycle? Oh, yes, we have. Well, maybe before we get to what has changed, you can walk us through the AP's process for election calling. It's really fascinating. And it's very much shoe leather. Mm-hmm. It is.
8: So the Associated Press is the organization, the one news organization in the country that collects and distributes all the votes to other news organizations. The reason the AP does it is we are the, not, the not-for-profit the not news organization owned by all the other news organizations in the United States. Yeah. And you don't want to replicate this because it's very expensive on the order of eight figures every election cycle. So what we do is we put stringers in every county, town, City, borough, parish—these are like
0: freelancers.
8: Yeah, they're freelancers. We pay them, you know, a hundred dollars for election night and a hundred dollars for a practice uh, a week before, and they are calling into vote collection centers. We have three that run in the country, and there's an army of people who are punching the numbers into our computer network from the field, from what they're yeah. hearing from these stringers. Mm-hmm from the stringers. And that gets distributed to AP bureaus and to people like me who need to have instant access to the numbers so we can call races. But it's also distributed to all the newspapers, all radio stations, television stations who are members of the AP. And so when you
0: hear on election night, there's still a lot of votes out there. There's a lot of votes Mm -hmm. still. Uh, The idea is that there is probably a, a freelancer, as we've said, Who's sitting in a county mm-hmm. and has not yet reported those results because he or she hasn't gotten them yet per, per, per chance.
8: Right. And, and typically, uh, particularly in rural America, you will have counties that will, when the polls close, uh, start counting and give a wave of votes and then another and then another. And as you get deeper into the night, you begin to be able to build out a picture of what's going on. The tricky part comes at the very end of the night. When there are overseas ballots from military people, when there are are provisional ballots and a provisional ballot is, I went to the wrong polling place. Please let me vote. I know it will count. When there are absentees that are yet to be counted, that's when it gets hairy. Uh, And that's when you really have to know –
0: you have to trust your, your technology and you have to trust your gut. I'm glad you say that it's a mix of of gut and technology. I want to explore both of those. Mm -hmm. So first of all, the technology, there are some pretty sophisticated algorithms involved in this. It's not all gut.
8: No, it's not. In fact, it's a lot less gut than it is technology for most races. Ah. Uh, The AP, uh, and I think some of the other major organizations have similar uh, technology that they use. Ours is, uh, I think, particularly impressive because what it does is it gives me – a race-calling screen or a, a outstanding vote model screen that tells me how many votes from how many different places the trailing candidate needs to pass the uh, leading candidate, what the likely percentage of votes outstanding is, where they're from, and it gives me three different views of the state. It gives me by county, by geostrata, in other words, Western Slope, Denver suburbs huh. – And it also gives me by party strata. These are the collection of Republican counties. These are the collection of Democratic counties. And these are the middle of the road counties.
0: And I imagine that it's at this point that the gut is matched with the technology. You have to know these areas, right? Uh, You know that El Paso County is very different from Boulder County. Mm -hmm. And so outstanding vote in those counties are, are going to be very different as well.
8: That's right. And we have safeguards built into our technology. And this is one of the lessons of 2000. We have safeguards that say, okay, the past history of the vote in El Paso County is 60-40 Republican, let's say. Hmm. If the vote comes in 50-50 or 60-40 Democratic, a flag goes up on the screen and it says, check these numbers. They might be transposed. They might be wrong.
3: They
0: might be transposed because it sounds like that was the error that led to the half wrong call in 2000. When you insert humans into into a system, you get mistakes
8: and you have to anticipate those.
0: How much do you feel um, the pressure to call a race quickly? I mean, are you facing competition then from other outlets? And how much does that drive a decision? Because I I feel like that's where errors are introduced, when news organizations put fast over accurate. You know, at the AP, we've, we've long
8: had a cliche, which is be first, but first be right. Right. You don't you don't want to rush and get it wrong. So I'm more than happy to get beaten on X race or Y race if I'm not comfortable with the numbers that I see. Mm -hmm. The deeper you get into the night, the better the the AP is at this because of our network of of stringers. We typically pass the state – the secretaries of state and the lieutenant governors who – in various states who are tabulating this stuff – Because of our people on the ground.
0: You know this before the election officials. Yeah. We typically know this before the election officials. We're talking with the APs, the Associated Press's vote caller, race caller for election night, Jim Clark. Uh, You also do exit polling, don't you? We do. I have been curious how exit polling, particularly in Colorado, has changed, if at all, given that we are an all-male election Oh, this is a fascinating topic to me.
8: You're really letting me geek out
0: here. This is great. (laughs) Well, I suspect there are many listening who will geek out with us.
8: So uh, we determined after 2016 that exit polling nationwide was broken. And say what exit polling is. So So exit exit polling is literally a, uh, a person standing outside a polling place with a clipboard and a list of questions asking voters as they leave, would you like to take this exit poll?
0: And it's less about numbers and it's more about what? Feeling, sentiment
8: well it 's about numbers, who did you vote for? What issues drove you uh-huh. so the the exit the traditional exit pollings produce a number that gives you a guess at uh, who who won the state and why they won the state in Colorado because it 's all mail, uh, uh, an all male ballot yeah. we a couple of years ago switched to a traditional telephone poll in the uh, ninety six hours before polls closed, and it has proven much more accurate in in two thousand and sixteen, for instance. The last wave of exit polling that I was given had Hillary Clinton winning by about 4.5, and she won by about 4.5. It was spot on. On the other hand, in 2006, when I was the bureau chief up in Montana, the exit poll for the U.S. Senate race where John Tester beat Conrad Burns, yeah. the best number I had was Tester winning by seven percentage points. He won by like three-tenths of a percentage point, and that's because exit polling has a, uh, a liberal bias, and here's why. When conservatives or people who lean right – walk out of a polling place and see somebody holding a clipboard with the AP's emblem on it and CBS and NBC and CNN,
0: they turn around. They don't want any part of that. Uh, So more Democrats or liberal leaning folks will participate, will participate. Yeah. Very briefly, Jim Clark, I know there are folks who express frustration uh, that they they at least perceive races as being called before they voted. Is is that true? And, And what are the ethics of that? We don't – uh, state by state, we don't call any race
8: until the polls have closed. Now, I may call races right at poll close literally 30 seconds later if the – When ex- there are people potentially standing in line. Well, if they're still standing in line, I won't do it. Ah. Uh, so that's, that's the dicey part. I ha- OK. We have to know and we monitor that very closely. But you can call races based on exit polling right at poll close and our standard is if the leader is ahead by three times the margin of error in the exit poll
0: – You call it. You call it. That's pretty conservative. Thanks for geeking out with us. Sure. Really appreciate it. Jim Clark is the AP's central regional director. He's been calling Colorado's election races for the organization for more than a decade. Deborah Ramirez of Boulder is glad she came forward with sexual misconduct allegations against Brett Kavanaugh, even though it didn't stop him from being appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's according to her attorney, John Clune.
3: I think that at the end of the day, you know, we at least were able to get um, Debbie's voice out there and give people the opportunity to do with it what they want.
0: Two weeks ago, The New Yorker published Ramirez's account of sexual misconduct by Kavanaugh at a college party in the 1980s. Last week, the FBI spoke with Ramirez. Despite her account and sexual assault allegations from others, including Christine Blasey Ford, the Senate confirmed Kavanaugh this past weekend. President Trump held a swearing-in ceremony Monday. Klune tells us that he and his client expected more from the FBI investigation— in particular, agents came to Boulder to question Ramirez, but didn't contact witnesses she provided them.
3: The FBI that we worked with and the FBI that I've worked with historically over the, my years as an attorney um, would have been a very you know motivated and diligent law enforcement agency. So it's it was frustrating to actually finally get the announcement of an FBI investigation and then really see it used probably more to give cover to... The confirmation process rather than actually try to find out what did or didn't happen.
0: Still, Clune says Ramirez was aware from the beginning that coming forward might not sway the Senate's vote.
3: I don't think that she is happy to have him on the court, but uh, it really wasn't what she was focused on in this process. It was more about just getting the information into her proper hands.
0: Clune says he thinks the last couple of weeks show that progress is being made on behalf of women who have come forward to say they were sexually assaulted.
3: Even though this may feel a lot like the Clarence Thomas hearings, it's, it's not. It's on a, on a much higher level, and I think it's a sign that, as a society, there's at least a large segment of the community that is done you know, tolerating misconduct and silencing of those voices.
0: Attorney John Clune says Deborah Ramirez has received a lot of support from the Boulder community and says he expects his client to have a smooth transition back to normal life. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We had an unusual visitor this morning, a robot, and I promise I had nothing to do with picking its name.
7: Hello. My name is Ryan. I hope you are having a great day.
0: Ryan is designed to be a companion tested most recently with people who have dementia, the robot has a human-looking face, it's basically a torso placed on a table, there's an interactive screen on its belly, and Ryan is capable of conversation. Green lights on the shoulders indicate it's ready to listen. Hi Ryan, my name is Ryan too.
7: Hi there, Ryan. What do you want to talk about?
0: Uh, gosh, uh, how about Politics.
7: Politics is the art of the possible. Art is the politics of the impossible. More about politics?
0: Sure. Uh, Are you a Republican or a Democrat?
7: I am a companion, but...
5: She's a companion boss. Yeah, she doesn't express, you know, political... (laughs) Can you tell us a joke?
7: What do you call shoes made from banana skin? Slippers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: ha ha. <laughs> okay, that other voice is Ryan's creator, Mohammed Mahoor, professor of computer engineering at the University of Denver. Uh, he left Ryan in our waiting room and is in the studio now. Hi, Muhammad.
5: Hi, Dwayne.
0: Nice to see you again. Also with us is Sarah Schoder, wellness director at Eaton Senior Communities in Lakewood where Ryan is being tested with some of the residents. Hi, Sarah.
9: Good morning, Ryan. Mohammed, why a
0: robot? I mean, why not a person? What does what a robot achieve that a person perhaps cannot? Uh,
5: so uh, Ryan is designed to complement human, not to replace human. To complement, okay. Yeah, to help human, right? So we call, Ryan is a socially assistive robot. And what does that mean? Uh, what does the robot add? So, so robot... Uh, So as you may know, there's a shortage of caregivers now in the country, and uh, a social robot like Ryan can help caregivers like Sarah. So if they don't have time, they are not available, so she can take care of uh, people with dementia and Alzheimer's disease and depression.
0: Interesting. So this might actually be addressing something of the worker shortage. Uh, When you were starting to think about designing a robot to help seniors, what, what
5: problems were you trying to solve? exactly the same problem the shortage of caregivers actually and also the other problem that we have been working on is depression so many of these people with dementia are, is- are isolated they are depressed and uh, they may not uh, visit nobody visit them during the day and uh, so a robot can be a companion for them so they can have conversation with Ryan And the conversation can be very interesting and funny. And I have to think that a robot might be more patient,
0: Sarah, than a person. And so if someone with dementia is perhaps repeating something or asking something for a fourth or fifth time, a robot may respond a bit differently to that.
9: Yes, right, and that's correct. So with the robot, um, the robot tries to propel the conversation forward, kind of helping them to go to that next subject matter. And so it, it also is more patient, but it also helps to create that conversation and get that person talking beyond that uh, point.
0: Give me an example of an interaction that you witnessed.
9: Yes, yeah, so uh, I have out. had... So I've actually had the opportunity to see many, many interactions with the robot. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story about Hugo. Um, Hugo was one of the residents I didn't expect to be successful with the robot But he was experiencing loneliness and depression. His wife had died, had moved into our community, and life sort of became empty. So we uh, signed him a robot. Um, He agreed to do it a little bit hesitantly, but he did. And we found that Hugo um, started to interact with the robot on a regular basis. He would oftentimes refer to as a very nice lady, and she talks to me when no one else will. Um, Hugo and his sister would spend hours each evening playing and laughing with the robot. It would uh, play jazz for them that they both enjoyed. But Hugo's um, sister also came and she loved to tease the robot. And so they would have an evening where there would be laughter and interaction. And um, it also gave Hugo um, a chance to interact with others outside of the his immediate family. Many people came to see him and visit with him because he had a robot. Hmm. And so it It helped him create a sense of importance. It's
0: interesting. You say that Hugo is not someone you expected to have done well with the robot. Why?
9: Well, Hugo was a little bit quiet. Um, He stayed in his apartment. He loved to go to activities and interact in our community, but he couldn't remember. And so um, he just kind of stayed at home and just kind of kept to himself. And so I went and talked to him. And I believe that he agreed because Hugo really liked me. And so... um, As we came to find out, he was one of these people that just really, really blossomed from the robot interaction.
0: Now, I understand someone was in tears when the robot was removed. Was that yeah. Hugo?
9: Yes, Hugo and his sister both cried when they removed the robot.
0: Let's talk about the sorts of tasks that the robot can engage in as well. So, Mohammed, I, I think it can remind folks to take medication. What, mm-hmm. what else is the robot capable of?
5: So you can have conversation with Ryan as long as you want? Yeah. About different topics and matters. It can remind you to take your medications or go to events. And also you can play cognitive games. So it can stimulate your brain. So that tablet that we have on the belly or the chest of the robot, we can play cognitive games with that as well.
0: It looks a bit like an iPad on the, the abdomen of Correct. Ryan the robot. Correct. And yes. that opens up the world to, to games, c- cognitive development, as you say. Yeah. How, how important do you think it is that this robot has a, a kind of soft human face?
9: I think it's easier to make that eye contact. I feel like when I'm interacting with Ryan, because she's looking at me and she's showing expression and she tracks me as I move around the room, I feel like I'm with a a human being. What
0: other uses do you think there could be for Ryan and Ryan's successor? Because uh, the version that you can see, for instance, on my Twitter feed right now at CPR Warner, I think is is one version older. But where where do you
5: see this headed, Mohammed, in terms of robots as as almost caregivers? So uh, I think in the very near future, it's going to be in the market, and many people are going to use it. And you're adding, constantly working on adding more technology and more features to Ryan. So, like, for example, yeah. they can play, I mean, they do Tai Chi dance or yoga. Oh, a robot could teach you to do some Tai Chi. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Because then in the next generation, the arms of the robot are going to be active. So she can move her arms as as, you know, as gesture and also dancing.
9: So what I see is our, our movement in, in aging is what we call aging in place. People want to stay in their homes, but they need supportive services. And I see Ryan filling that void where the inner, the robot can like uh, engage in exercises, doing medminders, um, helping that person to be able to stay independent and stay in that home setting that they desire.
0: At what cost, though? I mean, how much does Ryan cost these days?
5: So it costs about $9,000 to build a robot. Okay. However, that's not uh, the business model that we have in mind. So we are going to, people are going to you know, lease Ryan for a price of… Lease
0: uh, robots? Yeah. For All fee- right. <laughs> What's the biggest uh, obstacle or failure you saw? I don't want to maybe just paint, Sure. You know. Um,
9: you know, I would say that we saw more successes than failures. We found out that one of our residents had hearing loss, and so there were some challenges with the technology. And also, too, she loved to garden, so she was never home. Mm-hmm. So we realized that we had to kind of look at who might benefit in some of the challenges, but then the team worked to overcome those. I can't say that we really saw any failures.
0: Well, thanks to both of you for being with us. It was fascinating to meet you. And especially Ryan, whom you refer to as she, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. But but there's a a genderlessness to Ryan.
5: Yeah, Ryan is a unisex name. Okay.
0: Thanks to both of you. Mohamed Mohor created Ryan the robot to help with dementia patients. Mohor is a professor of computer engineering at the University of Denver. And Sarah Shoder is wellness director at Eaton Senior Communities in Lakewood, where Ryan is being tested with some of the residents. As I said, we'll have photos of Ryan and his or her visits to our station online later today. In 1946, Violet Schmidt-Weitzman was a Rockford peach. That was the professional women's baseball team in Illinois made famous in the film A League of Their Own.
7: Are oh, these girls going to be in the league? You wish. You do wish. They're going to have four teams, 16 girls to a team. That's right. 64 girls.
9: Yeah, what are you, a genius? <laughs> you know, they got over 100 girls here, so... um. Some of you are going to have to go home. Yeah, sorry about that. Come on, Doris. Those people are jerks. What do you mean some
0: of us? Now, at almost 92, Weissman lives in Fruta, Colorado, and reminisces about her time as a peach, as well as her two minutes as mayor of Detroit, and more recently, her skydiving adventures. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I understand that you still hand out your Rockford peach baseball cards from 72 years ago. Yes, I did. What does it look like? What is it? What? Uh, what does it look like?
4: It's got the picture of me on it, and a skirt. It was about six inches above your knees. It was supposed to be peach color, like a peach. And the hat came with it. Otherwise than that, that's that's it. I had little panties underneath, naturally. <laughs> 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 so, we had a little uh, write up about me on the back side of it. And it said, I was a a pitcher in 1946. I have some here. If you want some, you can have some. (laughs) Uh, How is it that you still have
0: copies of that card, Violet?
4: Well, there was a Finch or Flinch or whatever in Wisconsin, I think it was. And that's where we were getting them. Now we're getting them from another place. Oh, they're still being printed. Oh, oh my gosh, yes. I get fan mail all the time. The last one I got was from uh, Alabama. He was a sixth grade school teacher, history. And he was making the board with uh, women's baseball on it. He was doing like a bulletin board.
0: Yeah. What was it about the Rockford Peaches that so captured and has really held the public's interest? Well, they
4: were just a good team. Good-looking gals. <laughs> if you do say <laughs> what so. What more maybe? do you want? <laughs>
0: <laughs> How are you on the team? I, I know you were with— I was you. a bench warmer.
4: Yeah, I was going to try out for left field because I liked left field. And uh, nobody was looking at me, evidently. And then I was throwing sidearm pitching to my girlfriend, Rita, and Bill Ellington signed me up. The coach of Rockford Peaches. The coach. Why were you a bench warmer? Well, they had, what, three, four other pitchers ahead of me that were the regulars, and I was just a, a rookie. What did it feel like
0: to be chosen?
4: Like you're a queen. <laughs> I was very thrilled to think that I was picked. Had you
0: been playing baseball for a long time? I mean, how did the idea of even being a... Peach well, I was come a about? sand.
4: I played sandlot, lot, and then when my mother died, we were put in the orphanage, and I played different teams from Catholic youth. We had a nun that was our coach for a while. Then we had seminarians that came in in the summertime, and they coached us.
0: Indeed, you were in an orphanage, and and maybe we can just back up a little bit. Being a peach was not really your first brush with fame, because before you were recruited, you were a a book character
4: named Curly Top. Yes. (laughs) Tell me that story. Well, I used to wave at the 20th Century train. They came twice a day past our house, morning and night.
0: You were from Indiana. Then?
4: From Fort Wayne, Indiana. Yeah. Yes. I waved twice a day to them, and uh, they took notice. Movie stars were on there. I got a uh, autograph from Robert Taylor, Marilyn Loy, Shirley Temple. They would hollow out a potato and roll up the menu and put it in the potato and throw it out at me from the observation car. I mean, I could go on and on. I think I I might hear your
0: daughter in the background who's whispering that Spencer Tracy was on board. Spencer Tracy,
4: yes. (laughs) And then you became depicted in in this book. Yeah. I was mayor of Detroit for two minutes when I was there.
0: Uh, This was on the book tour?
4: Yes. uh it took me, I think it was 10,000 mile different places that the trip was to sign these books.
0: Huh. Uh, After those days, those happy curly top days. Uh, your mother died of a, a sudden heart attack at the age of 32. And um, this is the beginning of how you wind up in an orphanage.
4: My dad remarried after mother died and didn't want us. So we were put in a Catholic home by an aunt.
0: That must have been very difficult.
4: Yes, it was. It was. But the nuns were, you know, nice. and Introduced you to baseball, I guess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we had uniforms on, too. I mean, our skirts were down to our ankles.
0: <laughs> that doesn't sound very easy for running They were bases. different
4: than what the All-American Girls wore. It kind of held you back. But,
0: uh... <laughs> <laughs> Many decades later, you were an extra in League of Their Own, a the movie with Tom Hanks, Gina Davis, Rosie O'Donnell, Madonna. Was that movie true to the reality of the Rockford Peaches?
4: Yes and no. That's Hollywood for you. <laughs> we didn't have a coach coming into the locker room, things like that.
0: So the movie depicts a male coach coming into the women's locker room.
4: That never happened. No, uh, uh-uh. okay. they never came in there. Not when I was in there anyway. Now, can I see you if, if I watch the movie? Yes. I'm wearing a white sweatshirt. It says All-American Girls Professional Baseball on it. And I was behind the first baseline, but some of these scales were quite big, and you could just barely see me a little bit <laughs> on it, <but laughs> I'm a short one. And then we finished off the movie, the 43 of us scales did, Vancouver's right. town
0: Home of the Baseball Hall of Fame, of course. Yes. Why did you leave the Rockford Peaches after a year? Tell me what went into my, that. Uh,
4: I met my husband, and he said he married a, a woman and not a muscle man. And he never let me work. He said, if you go to work, I'll stay home and watch the kids and do the housework and we'll live off your wages. So I stayed home then. What did you think of that? Well, I stayed home. You mind, your, the boss. <laughs> do you regret it sometimes?
0: No. No, I don't. Uh-uh. I want to talk about your skydiving because... <laughs> You don't seem to be able to just sit down and You be. ought to do it.
4: <laughs> you,
0: you did this at 90, huh?
4: Yes. I thought, well, George Bush could do it at 90. I could do it at 90. The free fall I didn't like because it's quite cold coming down without the parachute. And then he opens up the parachute and you float down. But all I kept saying he, when he was showing me different monuments and that, telling me different things, and I kept saying, get me to the ground. Just get me to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> was this above Grand Junction? Uh, no, Moab, Utah. Above Moab? I'd do it again, I think. Would you? Uh-huh. Do you still watch baseball? Uh, No, it's a little slow. I like football and <laughs> basketball. <laughs>
0: Not the answer I was expecting, Violet. <laughs> thank you so much for being with us.
4: But I like baseball. <laughs>
0: I appreciate your time.
4: Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Violet Schmidt-Weitzman was a pitcher for the Rockford Peaches in 1946. She lives in Fruita, Colorado, and joined us in our Grand Junction studio. Broadway declared her unsinkable. Now, Colorado's socialite Molly Brown's story comes to life in a three-act ballet. Denver Ballet's Ariel opens its 20th season with Tale of Molly Brown. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf takes us to a rehearsal.
6: About a dozen ballet dancers mill about the dance studio after their lunch break. They pull costumes over their leotards and rehearsal clothes. Ballet aerial director Elena Norton calls them to the front of the room.
10: So let me introduce, so this is Andrea Malcolm Mm -hmm. from from the Molly Brown House Museum.
6: Andrea Malcolm is the museum's director. She stands up from her chair at the front of the room and begins to tell the dancers about Margaret Brown, the seemingly larger-than-life woman. Brown was an activist and believed everybody was created equal, Malcolm says but she was also an artistic woman. She danced, she yodeled, she played the zither and guitar. So she's here with you in spirit today as a fellow performer um, and thought that dancing and singing um, and other ways of performing really were good for the soul. Director Elena Norton choreographed Tale of Molly Brown. She likes to turn to history when
10: looking for new stories for new ballets. Molly Brown is such an important figure in Denver history, and I think that she epitomizes what was happening with women at the turn of the century. So I think that was a very important story for us to tell. Ballet Ariel debuted the ballet in 2011. For research,
6: Norton says she read a lot about Brown, traveled to places where Brown lived, and worked with the Molly Brown
10: House Museum. Museum curators would weigh in if they felt like something was inaccurate. There was one point in the ballet during the ballroom scene where we had Molly dancing with several different men. And I think the curator felt like that was something Molly wouldn't do. Dancer Jennifer Kuhn also did her research.
6: She portrays Molly Brown and read a lot about her to study up for the role. She hopes to really capture Brown's personality in her performance.
10: I feel like that sometimes is the harder thing is when you have to portray somebody, especially somebody with such a legacy and such a history here in Colorado. I feel like that's kind of even more of a responsibility than trying to do something very technical. The ballet's opening scene is set in Leadville, where Margaret and
6: J.J. Brown's courtship begins. It follows the couple's striking gold and their subsequent rise through Denver high society. There's narration at the beginning of each act, but Norton tries to let the movement tell the story. The end of act two highlights Brown's activism with the women's suffrage movement. Norton says she envisioned these women gathering
10: with Brown for some kind of rally. And so the movement is strong, and it's kind of in the character of a march. The
6: dancers wear sashes over their dresses. At one point, the Molly Brown character moves center stage, with the other dancers flanked around her. They lift their arms up to the sky, their gaze following. The ballet also features Brown surviving the Titanic, and how she helped others escape the sinking ship. You might expect this to be a very dramatic scene, but Norton takes a more understated approach. At the top of the scene, the lighting casts the shape of a small boat on the stage. Brown helps dancers, wrapped in cloaks, into this lifeboat. They eventually disperse and perform a languid dance of despair to Aaron Copland's arrangement of at the river. ¶¶ Ballet's entire score is a compilation of turn-of-the-century music, mostly by American composers, and all performed live by the Gossamer Winds Quintet. You'll likely recognize some of the songs, including Yankee Doodle. The Broadway musical Unsinkable Molly Brown takes a few artistic liberties in its depiction of Brown. But Norton says she wanted to be as
10: authentic in her storytelling as she could. So we didn't make up a lot of fiction. And I think her story is is riveting without needing to add a lot of fiction to it.
6: The Molly Brown House Museum's Andrea Malcolm says these productions are a great entry point to learning about Brown's legacy. I think she herself would love this, you know, that that she's still being talked about, that she's still standing as a great role model for, for all of us here in Colorado and around the world. And, you know, she loves a good play. She loves a good performance. So she would say, "Here, here." Malcolm adds that Brown probably wouldn't have minded any embellishments to her life story she was known for adding her own during her time. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News.
0: Ballet Ariel's Tale of Molly Brown is Thursday at the Schoolhouse Theatre in Parker. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. You've been listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News.